Hi friends, welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And the project is to work through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. You are very welcome. We're partway through season three, which is the Gospel of Matthew, and we're in chapter 10, picking up today at verse 19, thinking about the reason we as Christians, and for that matter, the Christian church is persecuted. Now, if you're here for the very first time, I strongly recommend that you click on that subscribe button wherever it is you're getting your podcasts from, and that way you too can make the decision to make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of your daily life, and hopefully then you won't ever miss another single episode. So with that all said, we'll drop into the main text and hang on at the end, particularly if you're new to this, and I'll tell you other ways that you can connect to other teaching and resources that I make available. Bye for now. Okay, here we are, folks, picking up at Matthew chapter 10, verse 19 to 23 we're going to be covering today, and we're thinking about the reasons that we as individuals, or even perhaps the Christian church, is persecuted. This is the second in two parts looking at this issue, and we saw last time that in its treatment of slaves, the Christian church seemed to the Roman authorities a force which was in a sense disrupting their civilization and threatening potentially the very existence of the Roman Empire. You see, by giving slaves a position what they should never have had according to Roman law, they were beginning to see Christianity as something that could seriously affect certain vested interests they had, connected not only with the Roman religion but with the administration of the state. You see, Christianity, in a sense, even today, preaches a view of humanity in which no totalitarian state can survive long term. Either Christianity will spread and the power of the oppressor will recede, or the state will attempt to crush it by persecution. Christianity deliberately eliminates, by its very existence, certain worldviews and even some trades and occupations as ways of making money. Obvious things like prostitution and slavery come into mind, but also by changing the demand in the marketplace, it can really prejudicially affect vested interests, even today. It still does that to this day, which also, of course, the other side of that coin is that every Christian believer, even today, is still predisposed to persecution for their faith. If we're going to be committed to following Jesus Christ, then we're going to meet opposition out there. So this passage is telling us to be prepared for that. Not only the church, but the individuals within the church may be persecuted because they're challenging the established order of things. Now this passage now suggests another way in which the Christian believer might face opposition and it starts to be unpacked for us beginning in verse 19. So Matthew 10, 19 says, But when they deliver you up, Do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should say. So he's talking in verse 19 about being delivered up, handed over if you like, but at the same time trying to encourage us and say, don't worry when that happens. This handing over may be to civil 
or a religious authorities, or even both. Now that sounds pretty scary, doesn't it? And even today, in some countries, people are still arrested and thrown in prison for just making the decision to follow Jesus. It even mentions martyrdom here, which sadly, even today, is definitely a possible repercussion of becoming a Christian in some countries today. This is indeed heavy-duty stuff that he's preparing us for. But right in the middle of it, he says, Oh, by the way, that might happen, but don't worry. Don't worry about it. Now, you may have noticed that this phrase, don't worry, is a bit of a repeating refrain in this chapter. Back in chapter 9, he said, do not worry about how you speak and what you say. So he said, don't worry about the content of what you're going to say and don't worry about the form in which you're going to say it. Now, let me be clear, this attitude of not worrying about what we say when it comes to speaking about God is not meant to apply to us today on Sunday mornings or in any way about the preparation of sermon or teaching or anything like this. This is not intended to be the normal approach to preaching or teaching or even in terms of evangelism. It's trying to tell us how we should respond to persecution when we face it. This is not intended to undermine the need for the preparation when teaching from the scriptures. This is talking about something that is applied to emergency situations like when you're standing before a person of authority facing persecution. Those moments he's telling us to be calm and relax and allow God to speak to us and through us. So this applies to those people then and still people today who are facing direct persecution for their Christian faith. And it says we need in those moments to take time to pray and prepare our thoughts and our defence. And Jesus says that if we're caught in that sort of situation, that's what we should do. So try not to worry about it. There's a verse in the Bible that teaches us that the Holy Spirit can teach you all things and it can bring to mind all things when you need them. But that for most of us will take place over a period of time and in most of our lives it will be a situation of a journey, a journey of Bible study and commitment to seeking answers. But the promise here is that in these extreme situations the Lord says don't worry about that. And he explains why in verse 20, because he says, For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of the Father who will speak in and through you. That's Matthew 10, 20. And that's why we don't need to worry. Now I'd like to turn here just for a moment and take a pause and look at Exodus chapter 4 and show you a situation where this happened in the Old Testament to a man called Moses. You see, God told Moses to go before Pharaoh, the king of the land, and tell him to let my people go. The children of Israel were facing extreme persecution and were, in fact, in slavery. And Moses had been told by God that he was the man that he was to go before this authoritarian king and say, let my people go. So look quickly at the conversation between Moses and God. Then Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since. You have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So the Lord said to him, Who made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now, therefore, and he's talking to Moses here, Go, and I will be your mouth, and teach you what you shall say. 
So we're talking about a very scary situation for Moses here. We're talking about a situation where he could potentially lose his head. And Moses is saying, yeah, Lord, you've spoken to me and that's a privilege and it's amazing, but I'm not eloquent. I'm not the one to speak on your behalf. And God says, Moses, just go. I will be your mouth and teach you what to say. That then and this aspect today enables us to face our fears feeling accompanied and equipped by God himself. Okay back to the Matthew text and at this point it tells us something else. Picking up in verse 21 it says now brother will deliver up brother to death and father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake but he who endures to the end will be saved let me make a couple of points about what this passage means and what it doesn't mean because he's clearly saying here don't worry but however you need to notice that earlier on it said about being set before taken up before religious leaders and then being delivered to civil leaders in other words facing opposition maybe being pulled before courts both religious and civil But now he adds that we may even get opposition from our very own families. Now I've seen all these three types of persecution played out in my life. Fortunately the family one didn't apply to me personally. But I have seen it happen to others many times. I've also had the privilege just this year of speaking and doing some videos for pastors and evangelists in Pakistan. And the government in that country and in countries like that can come down on pastors and their congregations pretty hard sometimes. I've also seen people get saved and because their families belong to another faith group or they've come from another religious background, they get all kinds of opposition from people who follow that particular religious persuasion. I have seen myself and heard endless stories of people having fierce opposition from their own families when they come to Christ. And if they dare start to witness for him, then things can get really bad for them. But that's what Jesus is talking about here. And he says that right in the middle of all this going on, he tells his followers, and that's us friends as well, if you're a disciple of his, he says, do not worry. He who endures to the end shall be saved. Now I need to point out what he's not saying here. That he's not talking about us being saved from spiritually that has already happened and persecution cannot rob you of your salvation you don't have to endure to the end to make it to heaven the verse is not talking about salvation what Matthew is talking about here is the subject of persecution the word saved here or safe here means to be delivered from the physical situation you're facing that's why I've chosen the translation that says safe because I know there are some out there that say saved Matthew's subject at this point in this verse is not about salvation from sin. That has already happened for the Christian believer. His subject that he's writing about in this chapter of Matthew chapter 10 is talking about persevering in the face of persecution. So he's clearly not talking about salvation of your spiritual life. He's talking about being safe from the situation of the opposition that you might face for being a Christian. So if anybody you know is using this verse to teach that you've got to endure to the end or you won't get to heaven, 
then they're taking this verse out of context. They're ripping it from its moorings and, uh, and letting it float over to another area that it doesn't belong. Because that is not what this verse is about, friends. The point of this passage is that we should endure persecution if it comes, and also reminding us that it's very likely that opposition and persecution will in fact come our way. The whole point of this little subsection in these verses is about telling us not to be afraid, not to worry. And Jesus has done this repeatedly through, in fact he did it a lot, through the Sermon on the Mount, which we covered some time back, and it took us several months to get through that. But repeatedly he said it then, and here in chapter 10 he's saying it again. I want you to be aware there's trouble out there, he said. There's wolves in the wood, there's sharks in the water, and there's vultures flying overhead. But don't worry, in all that you can still trust me, like a lamb trusts a shepherd. Jesus says one more thing in this section, and that's in verse 23, where he says, When they persecute you in the city, flee to another. For assuredly I say to you, you will have not gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Okay, this is a bit of a tricky verse, isn't it? He says to these disciples that you're not going to get through all the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now, some commentators look at that and say, wow, Jesus made a mistake here because they did make it through the cities of Israel. The only problem is they don't understand he has projected this speech not to just his disciples of, of his day, but for all the believers down through time. This verse covers the whole epoch of time right up to the second coming. Now, I didn't go into it in detail, but yesterday's message and today's, there are references to Matthew 23 and 24 coming up, which he'll pick up again later, specifically in relation to his second coming. But this verse is meant to apply to the whole epoch of time, right through from the calling of the first disciples to every disciple thereafter and their sins up until the second coming. But also there's a very practical point being made here as well. In that, if people don't accept what you're saying, he's teaching us to move on, to keep going. Go find someone or someplace else that they will listen to you. Don't get stuck there and don't get defeated there. Just keep moving. So I think the point here is that when we face opposition and people don't accept what we say, it doesn't mean we stop testifying and witnessing or explaining. We just keep going and going. For them, it meant that if the people in a town or a village that they visited, they didn't buy in with what they were saying in one place, they were just to move on to the next place, to the next village, the next town, or the next city, to just keep going. So in summary, I just want to sum up this whole section that we've covered these last couple of days and make, I think, a couple of pertinent observations. I think this passage is clearly talking about persecution. In fact, I'd say you'd be blind to miss that if you saw it as anything else. And Jesus is clearly saying that opposition is a very real possibility. If you're a believer, it will come your way and people may even intend to harm you. But even when you're facing those sorts of situations, remember, don't respond in a way that might do harm to others. Just keep moving on. Keep talking about the Lord, trusting in him, not worrying. Or to say it another way, 
the way to handle opposition is just to keep going and to use these oppositions as opportunities to talk about the Lord. Opposition should not deter us or prevent us. It should just make us more resolved to keep going. I think there are some naive Christians out there who think, you know what, I'm going to get, once I'm saved, I'm going to follow the Lord and things are going to be just like heaven for me. Well, if that's what you think, then you're getting ahead of yourself. Not yet anyway. There's going to be great joy and heaven does await. But as long as we're here in the flesh on this earth, we're going to face trouble. Those of us who preach and teach from the word, I believe are called to speak with the same frankness and honesty that Jesus himself spoke with. Jesus here warns us, his people, throughout all time, that we will face all manner of difficulty because of our decision to become a Christian believer. But through it all, we can count on him and we can also count on his Holy Spirit to aid us in all our defences against both civic, religious authorities, as well as even opposition from our own families. He doesn't offer us a life of comfort. He instead asks us to prepare for a life of hardship, peril, and maybe even for some, even today, death itself. Now, on the surface, this is hardly the way to win disciples, it would say, in the way the world thinks things should be done. But, my friends, this represents the truth of what I believe this passage is teaching. Men and women who respond to the plea and truth of the gospel in this way immediately begin preparing themselves for the persecution that might come and they also avoid the risk of responding to a false gospel which appeals maybe to promises of health and wealth and ever-increasing prosperity which then, when persecution comes along, they lose their faith completely. The danger facing the modern church, I believe, is we emasculate this message of the grace and power of God, reducing the saving power of God to just some flimsy, dodgy advice and false promises. My point is this, Jesus doesn't pull any punches here. He tells us straight up, there's trouble out there and if you follow me, you're going to face opposition. I'd like to close with an illustration. A friend of mine I grew up with, I'll name him, I'm sure he won't mind, he was a member of a local diving club when I lived in Ireland over 30 years ago, a sub-aqua club, and he was called Aidan McLarnan. And he told me what happened to him on one of his first shipwreck dives. Now I can't remember if it was his first wreck dive, and it's what happened to him, or whether it happened when he accompanied another person on their first shipwreck dive. But what I do remember as he told me that he found his way into a room in a submerged ship. But having entered this large room, he lost his bearings and he couldn't find his way out. And as he circled the four walls of the space, looking for a way out, he kicked up more and more silt, and his visibility kept reducing, and he couldn't find the door. He couldn't find his exit. And he began to panic more and more, which only made matters worse, because as his breathing increased and it got so rapid, he realised that he was using up his oxygen far more quickly than he should have, and that he was in fact running out of time. He hadn't got enough, he almost had run out of time to allow himself enough time to exit the ship and get to the surface safely. When he realised that he had only a couple of minutes or so of spare time left, he said he almost had the urge to give up. So he tried 
to gather his emotions and he paused for a minute and he tried to count slowly up to ten and back again and try to think clearly about his predicament. As he did that, the silt began to settle and he noticed the directions of the bubble rising to the surface. And in an instant, the position of where he was on the room came back to him. He says it, it was almost as if his mind switched and recalibrated his position in the room. You see, in the panic, the mental map of the space that he was in had been totally reconfigured in his mind, and he realised that in his panic, he'd been going round the four worlds, floor, ceiling, wall, floor, floor, ceiling, wall, floor, over and over again. He then calmly exited the door and made his way back to the surface with less than a minute to spare. I think that's a perfect picture of where we can get to in the midst of opposition, persecution, or maybe even just a panic attack. We get into the thick of the moment, the thick of the battle, and it can feel personal, and it can feel emotional, and if it comes from your friends and your family, or maybe even your religious connection, then you can get lost in the fog of war, so to speak. But Jesus here says, stop, pause, do not be afraid. I've already told you this was dangerous and that trouble like this would come. Thereby, focus on me. Trust in me. The dust will settle. The path will become clear and you will find your way through. Don't be afraid, Jesus tells us, because I am with you. And by the way, this is a great opportunity for you to depend on me also. You see, that's the whole point of this passage, friends. Don't miss the main point. Opposition is an opportunity to depend on God and to witness for Christ and the power of God. We have the help of the Holy Spirit who in that very moment can allow us to say yes to that challenge. You know, Christ in a sense draws a line in the sand and says on one side of that line lies a life of toil and hard work. A life which also means you will face opposition and maybe even discrimination and persecution. On this side of the line lies just the hollow pleasures of an ordinary life. And he says, the line is there. Let each and every individual man and woman choose their path and step over that line or otherwise. For my part, I made a decision to step over that line many, many years ago, and in a sense, take the same journey as those first 12 disciples did 2,000 years ago. You know, there is opposition out there, but there is a line on the sand, and on one side is the challenge of the life of a disciple, facing opposition, but also with each step you take, you have the promise and blessings of God, that he will be there with you, and that ultimately you have a secure place in heaven with a crown of life. I don't know about you, but I still today choose to step across that line and to follow him. And I trust you do also. Okay, people, that's it for today. Thank you again for joining me. If you're here for the first time, 
It's worth telling you that there are always lots of notes and ways in which you can connect with my ministry and other teaching. And there's also, in fact, a transcript of each and every one of these podcasts available, a transcript of roughly what I've said. Now, the podcast is hosted on the bibleproject.buzzsprout.com and that's where the Monday to Friday daily podcast goes. But then there's also a weekend compilation put up a couple of times a month on the Living in Faith Everyday podcast website. And that's the place where maybe if you've missed a few episodes, you can go and listen to a compilation of the Medity Together. Those compilation episodes are only put up there and left there for three months. Now, wherever you're getting your podcasts from, I am aware that some of the podcast providers and platforms, they don't allow active links through to other places. So if you're not seeing active links to those other places, wherever you get your podcast from, then please just visit thebibleproject.buzzsprout.com and you'll certainly find the links there to places like my YouTube channel, the Facebook community. And also places like even my personal LinkedIn page and my Patreon page, which is where I tend to put the more formal, structured, discipleship-type courses. But having said all that, thank you so much for joining me. Please consider sharing or liking this or sending a link of this to your friends or your Christian WhatsApp group so other people can perhaps benefit and make the decision to make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of their daily lives also. But that's us for today. Thank you so much for joining me. And I do trust I'll see you right back here tomorrow, or certainly very soon, on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.